If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. If you don't have your Bible with you, the words to our sermon text are provided for you uh, in the worship guide that you received when you arrived. Uh, and you can also turn to them if you wanted to. You could turn to them in the, in the pew Bible that is provided for you uh, in front of you. If anyone is using the pew Bible and wants to tell this forgetful pastor what page number uh, it is on, Psalm 24 is on there. 582. 582. Thank you, Neil. Neil won Bible drill this morning. Okay. I trust that whatever capacity, whatever means by which you get to Psalm 24, uh, you will get there, and we will all expectantly go before our Lord now and ask for him to minister to us in our time in his word. Would you pray with me? God, we ask now that you would show us your glory. You are king of glory. Meet us in your might. Show us the goodness, the sweetness of your mercy. And show us how these can come together and produce within our souls rejoicing that upholds us even as sorrows seek to drown us, even as fear and worry seem to try to derail us. Lord, show us the glory of Yourself, of Christ our King, of all that we have promised to us and can hold dear through him. We pray this in his name. Amen. There are a few lessons that I have learned as a relatively young pastor. Perhaps chief amongst those lessons, and when I say a few, I mean a, a, a lot. Uh, and there are still many that I still have to learn. But perhaps chief among those lessons that I have learned is that none of us are suffering from having too much hope. None of us are suffering from having too much confidence in God's goodness, in His mercy, in His faithfulness. Rather, we walk through day by day moment by moment, and all of the circumstances of our lives actually conspire against us at many times to try to derail us and to try to convince us that perhaps God cannot be trusted, that perhaps that hope that we have in our King Jesus is a mistaken, even wrong, foolish hope. What is the song that your heart sings when you need hope? Well, there are many that we could sing. But perhaps first, let's turn to Psalm 24. And I invite you to follow along as I read this passage. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas 
and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. May God write the truths of Psalm 24 upon our hearts as it shows us our King of glory in whom we can trust and hope. In fact, as we make our way through this passage, I want to put before you the following idea, the following thesis, and that is that our lives will only be ordered rightly When we do two things, when we behold the immense glory of God over us and live in the shadow of his mercy towards us. Let me say that again. Our lives will only be ordered rightly when we behold the immense glory of God over us and when we live in the shadow of his mercy towards us. Psalm 24 shows us. In this section of the Psalms, we find the people of Israel under the leadership of King David on a pilgrim journey through the travails and the hardships and the trials that would befall them as they march towards the city of God to be enjoyed by them, his covenant people. And this has import for us today as Christians, as we walk through the Christian life today, the the hope-starved life here and now, fresh off a pandemic, fresh off of of, of all that might ensnare us and freshly made aware of all that could derail us in the future. Psalm 24 gives us hope for today and for our eternity tomorrow. Many of you are no doubt familiar with this area, this section of the Psalms. Just before is perhaps the most famous Psalm, Psalm 23. David writes of walking through the the valley of the shadow of death, but knowing that God is with him and that he will ultimately arrive and feast at the table of God's bountiful mercy. And he says that he will arrive because the goodness and mercy of God will have been with him. It is as if God in his goodness and mercy will have carried him by the hands as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Now Psalm 24 continues this journey of Israel. The people of Israel were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the presence of God dwelt with his people. As they journeyed to Jerusalem, they would no longer be a nomadic people, constructing and then deconstructing a tabernacle and removing the Ark of the Covenant and making sacrifices in various places. But no, they're approaching Jerusalem. They are coming home after many years of wilderness wanderings 
following their miraculous rescue out of Egypt. And so as they approach Jerusalem, we now come upon the songs that they are singing, the truths that they are reminding themselves as they arrive in the city. And so in this pilgrim journey of our lives, all of us recognize as individuals created in the image of God, no two, one, no, no two of us are exactly the same. We all bring various backgrounds, experiences, uh, uh, makeups of our personalities, uh, all various different things about us. But Psalm 24 shows us the melody that our hearts together can sing and refrain in worship of our God. And the first note of this melody that I want us to catch in verses 1 and 2 is, May our steps be marked by knowledge of the immense glory of God over us. May our steps be marked by knowledge of the immense glory of God over us. One Old Testament scholar I read in my study noted that we see three aspects of God's creating work in verses 1 and 2. First, look at verse 1. You see the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We see that this God has created a fruitful earth, every inch of land, every leaf on a tree, every vine that hangs from a tree in the Daintree rainforest of Australia, every corn stalk in Iowa, every craggy rock in the Himalayas, every zebra roaming the savannas of eastern Africa, and every drop of rain that leads us inside for worship this morning as opposed to outside. All of it is the Lord's and it is created and upheld by him. But it is not just a fruitful earth that he is Lord over, but it is a populated earth. It says at the end of verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and then the world and those who dwell therein. Every day laborer in Sao Paulo or in Shanghai, every aging senior adult in Tokyo, unmet tribal peoples of the Amazon, high-powered enter- entertainment executives in Hollywood, unseen orphans in Eastern Europe, each and every one of us gathered here this morning. Every single human being created in the image of God and belonging to Him. And then verse 2, For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It is a fruitful earth, it is a peopled earth, and verse 2 shows us it is a solid earth. In different ancient creation narratives, oftentimes various peoples would write about many different gods who were waging war with one another. And a popular theme amongst uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern peoples was that there was a god of earth and a god of the seas. And the god of earth was, was the earth, god of this solid ground that we walk on. The god of the seas was a god of destruction and chaos as the seas raged and roared. But Psalm 24 tells us that our God is the God who rules over all of these In fact, his authority and concern, as one scholar writes, is displayed in that he subdues the chaotic waters that threaten the world. And in establishing the earth securely upon the waters, they are held in check only by his power. Every time we go to the beach, we acknowledge this, whether we confess it with our mouths or not. In fact, next time you take a walk along the beach, give praise to God that he has subdued the waters to the point that you can walk along the beach in peace and not in terror that the waters are going to all of a sudden reach up and grab you. 
So our Lord, He controls the earth and the fullness thereof. He has created it. He, can, he is Lord over all of us. And yet we are so easily busied and blinded by such truths. The noise of our schedules, the confusion of uncertain circumstances, these work against us in, in robbing us of hope in our God. And yet Psalm 24 stirs us towards seeing the immense glory of God who reigns in perfect wisdom and inexhaustible might. If you're not yet a Christian, we are glad to have you here. If you're curious or trying to figure out what Christianity is about, or you think you have it all figured out, whatever boat you may be in, may I encourage you to give thought to the beauty that you see on a walk through the forest. Give thought to the dynamic colors that light up the sky every sunrise and sunset. Give thought to the miracles of modern medicine, the fascinating laws of science, the wonders of physics and chemistry and biology. But don't stop at these. All that you see and all that you observe, take heart that these are but fingerprints of God that he has left upon the canvas of his creation. If you were at the Louvre and you were observing and carefully looking at the Mona Lisa, and Leonardo da Vinci walked up beside you, would you just ignore him? Or would you look at the painting, but then also turn to him and pepper him with questions? Say, oh my goodness, how did you do this? Oh, explain to me this. How did you get to the point where you created such a masterpiece? Why is it that we try to hear pulses and signals from aliens and unidentified uh, flying objects from farthest reaches of the universe. And we try to hear these because we want to believe that there might be aliens out there. And yet we see the fingerprints of God all over our world. And yet we give so little interest to him who has shown us that he does exist and that he rules over us in perfect might. Now back to the people of Israel. Put yourself in their position. They've wandered the wilderness for generations, waiting to enter the promised land. As a people, they had experienced the mighty hand of God. He had led them out of Egypt. He had parted the waters of the Red Sea that they may cross safely. And then as they were making their way towards the promised land, he did it again. He parted the Jordan River that they may cross. Their previous great leader, Moses had, had uh, God had taken him up to the top of mountains overlooking the promised land that he might see all that he had created and that he might see in that creation the faithfulness of God in leading his people. And what we know that the people of Israel, as they're marching towards Jerusalem in Psalm 24, what they knew was that their God who was their creator, there was a divine harmony here in the totality of, the, of, of who their God is, that he is the one who is in, immense in his might as the creator over them. But now secondly, he is the God who is at work not only in his might over us, but in his mercy within us. The second note of the song that we sing as we approach Jerusalem is the song of our hearts living in the shadow of God's mercy towards us in verses 3 through 6. 
So picture the people marching towards Jerusalem, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They would have these poles and this Ark and a big like tr- chest uh, uh, box and, and carrying that. And as, as they approach the city, uh, uh, I'm going to share with you a couple of uh, facts about this and, and put these in your mind as, as the people of Israel are marching towards the city. One scholar writes that we know that at least the southern approach to the temple was perforated with numerous small baths in which the worshipers would cleanse themselves before approaching the holy precincts. And they would recite Psalm 24, verses 3 to 6, not in self-righteous boastfulness, as if, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Oh, we can. No, but in solemn confession of dependence upon God and His mercy. In fact, it's even possible that priests would call out these questions to those preparing to enter the temple. So listen to the questions in verse 3. Imagine the priest calling out as the people march towards the city, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? Let me ask you these questions. But let me ask it in a slightly different way. How do you understand your relationship with God? By our lives, some of us testify that we believe God to be more like our landlord, let's say. Sure, we wave at him when we see him. We call him if we have a problem with something pressing. We pay our rent when it's due, but we don't really do much more, really. And we might even have an approach that's based on verses 1 and 2. God, what a nice home you've constructed for us to live in. I'll do my best to take care of it while I'm here. But verses 3 through 6 force us to recognize that if we will know God at all, we must know Him as the builder of the home of our lives, of our souls. Said another way and bluntly, God is not interested in being your acquaintance. To have any relationship with Him is to invite Him to know you more intimately than anyone else, even possibly yourself, or even definitely yourself. It's to invite Him to know you more than anyone. God does not just allow us to look outwardly and marvel at His might, but He brings us to the point where we must look inwardly that we may marvel at His mercy. So as the people of Israel, as their own sinful disobedience against God that raged across generations and generations as they wandered in the wilderness, as they begin to approach Jerusalem, they are singing in humble contrition before God this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? They sing verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now imagine you were walking up to church this morning, and instead of me standing down at the front door like I normally do most Sundays and saying hi, imagine I was standing up in the steeple, like had a window open and was crying out, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's a strange image, huh? But what would you say? Well, first of all, okay, just theologically, like, like the hill of the Lord, the presence of God, that's not entering into church. It's entering into the presence of God. It's having a relationship with him. So it's not the same thing, but just for the idea, you can go with it. But what would you say if I asked you that? We, of course, know the good Christian answer. We would say, oh, because of, uh, because of Jesus. And that's true. 
I hope I would say something along the lines of that tied in with the gospel and tied in with verses 4 and 5. And, and uh, I, I, my, the pure hands, the clean heart that I bring is not of my own. I don't have it, but it's in Jesus alone in whom I take my trust. That's the answer. But it's the answer our mouths say, but our hearts sometimes struggle to believe. So often, mercy-infused humility before God is in short supply in our hearts while we overflow with pride-drunk boastfulness. We don't bring our record of wrongs before God and cry out for mercy. We bring our carefully crafted resumes and cry out with what we believe we are entitled to. We don't bring the brokenness and discord hidden behind the walls of our home, but we bring the carefully airbrushed portraits that we hang over the fireplace And we do our best to measure up before his sight. And that is something that is part of all of our human nature. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, it is our default to try to measure up before God through our own actions, through our own works, believing that we are better than the other guy. One of the mysteries of the gospel is that the first step to measuring up before God is, in fact, realizing and embracing the fact that you don't measure up before God. You can't climb the hill of His presence. Paul Tripp, a well-known writer and biblical counselor, has said before that one of the greatest ways that we can actually begin to understand the work of Christ towards us is by first firing the inner defense lawyer that we all employ. That one that will stand up and say, no, I am righteous for this reason. I am innocent for this reason. I am this for this reason. And Tripp himself concedes. He says, I don't have an inner defense lawyer. I have a whole defense. I have a whole law firm. And I imagine many of us are like that too. I know I am. But the truth of what we see in Psalm 24 is that we may be able to fool those around us. We may be able to fool even ourselves, but we cannot fool God. And so the way to climb the hill of God's mercy is to actually not try to climb higher with all of our carefully crafted resumes, but to fall down before Him and allow Him to lift our face out of the ground and meet us in mercy. These cries on the part of Israel as they approached Jerusalem, they were cries on the part of a people who had learned that you don't come before God based on your terms, but on His. And let me say something that might be staggering or even striking to some of you. If your heart has felt acutely conviction over your own sin, or you feel sorrow over shame that you bear, over a past experience that humiliated you, over something that went wrong or fell apart in the home, in the workplace, in the school, perhaps some kind of public humiliation that you bear that still haunts you to this day. May I encourage you to know, first of all, that God has seen it and to know, dear Christian that perhaps it would even be appropriate to pause and thank God for the mercy of opening your eyes to the folly of trying to climb His holy hill. In fact, the conviction that we carry for our sin 
is not something that ought to cripple us, but it is a gift of God's kindness to us to cause us to try to stop climbing the hill and to start looking to Christ. Now, I'm going to revisit this in a second because it could almost sound sadistic, like, like, like glory in my own sin, glory in the humiliation, the pain, the agony, the sorrow, the hardship that I had to bear. You're saying God uh, rejoices in that over me? Not quite. I'm saying we rejoice in the, hum- in the humbling that our lives has given us if it has brought us to God and brought us to His mercy. But I'll come to that next part in a moment. So let's consider these. Clean hands, a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. Said simply, he who has clean hands, he who does not swear deceitfully, does right by others, acts in honesty and charity towards those around him or her, and seeks to do right even when others are not looking. This imagery of clean hands was they don't have innocent blood on their hands. And they have a pure heart. Not only are their hands clean, not only are they free from conviction for their actions, but this is the part that is a little more dangerous, but they have a pure heart. They haven't meditated upon or considered or desired that act of vindictiveness towards those who have wronged them. Some of us might be able to bring the clean hands to the table, but it's the pure heart that we struggle with. Your blood starts to boil when you think about that past wrong that you were on the receiving end of. You see times when you don't wish well upon others, but you wish harm. Or maybe not harm, but just a little disappointment. You just think they need, they need to be brought down a peg or two. Or maybe I'm the only one that ever does that. I don't know. Clean hands and a pure heart seem easy. But we know, in fact, if we investigate our own hearts, that they're not that easy. The struggles with envy, the struggles with jealousy, the struggles with boastfulness, struggles with animosity that we have towards others. And yet, what I believe God's Word shows us is that a pure heart is not a perfect heart. A heart that has tasted the bitter, stagnant water of a life unwilling to, it, to, it, to submit itself before God is an unclean heart. But the pure in heart is the one who has tasted the living water of Jesus Christ, a living water that knows our efforts to clean ourselves up and our appearances and how others might perceive us. And we are more like the woman at the well in, 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 um, in John's gospel, where Jesus speaks to our innermost shames, our innermost sins that we carry around. And, and we might be like that woman terrified of someone else who knows it. But Jesus offers himself to you and to me to bear our sin and our shame and to give us himself. And he promises in this living water that he gives to never depart, to never let you go, and to always nourish you in the same steadfast love and goodness that is promised in Psalm 23, that guides his people up to the city in Psalm 24, and is given through him today. This phrase, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, could be understood as does not worship false gods. What Psalm 24, one thing it shows us is that emotionally, spiritually, experientially, there are in fact no atheists. 
Our hearts will all seek to find ultimate purpose, ultimate meaning in some kind of cause. Even if that cause is one of trying to prove that there is no God. Your God is trying to prove this. Your God is whatever cause, whatever purpose, whatever uh, uh, ambition that we may set for ourselves as the, as the aim, the course of our lives by which we will find fulfillment, by which we will find peace. And yet, what we find in Psalm 24 is that our lives were created not to have uh, these false, empty gods revolve around us, but that our lives might revolve around our God who is our creator and who meets us in mercy. Hundreds of years ago, human beings wrongly believed that the sun revolves around the earth. And we are still stuck in that stone age if we believe that, that, that the things of our life, the things of our world, those which we seek uh, 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 our, our reputation and our, our, our um, glory in before either ourselves or others, we think those revolve around us when in fact our hearts were actually wired that the praise of our hearts might revolve, not the, not the sun revolving around the earth, but our, the earth of our lives revolving around the sun of our God. You get the idea. I've kind of butchered the illustration, but you get the idea. It felt better when I was writing it, but you understand. In fact, consider now the promise of blessing in a life rightly oriented around God. Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. You see this, he receives blessing. He receives righteousness from the God of our salvation. So God meets us in mercy by showing us our great need for mercy and meets us in mercy by bearing with us in our great sin against him and meets us in mercy in picking our faces off the ground and saying, come to me and live. And in fact, allow me to pick you up and carry you. This is the promise that is found embraced in the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And when we realize this, that we need Christ alone to be our righteousness, that blessing from God is found in knowing Christ, that he is an emissary of God's mercy sent on a mission from God to us. It is then that we can step into a cross-shaped shadow of mercy And that we can see that this righteousness from God is found via the sacrifice of Jesus, who he had clean hands and a pure heart. And so then the Christian life becomes not one of of seeking to build ourselves up to be shown off before others or before ourselves, but of Christ taking residence in our hearts and transforming it in accord with his purposes for us. Where he becomes the owner of our souls and of our hearts, and he builds us in accord with his good and God-glorifying purposes. And this is a home where we don't have to worry what others will think about us, but where we can enter in and truly be at peace in Christ. And this line, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. That's a strange line. Do you remember Jacob from Genesis 32? Genesis 32 tells us that Jacob wrestled with God and that that wrestling match ended with God blessing him. I think what, what God is showing the people of Israel here is that, that we come to God 
not wrestling with him as if he won't give us mercy, but rather grabbing hold of that mercy in the person and work of Jesus Christ and refusing to let go. The hope that we need in this life, the hope that you need day by day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, as you navigate this world, as you navigate the to-do list that is only growing, the calendar that is only filling, the bad news that is only exploding off the newspaper, as you walk through that and all of that works against you to, to bring you to despair, the hope that you need, the thing you cling to and refuse to let go is the risen Christ who has atoned for your sins and who offers you new life and promises you new life in him. And what you will see, what I, and hang on to this, what I believe that we all who are in Christ will find in this life, but also for sure in our eternity in his presence, is that when we, clan, when we grabbed most forcefully a hold of Christ and refused to let go amidst the, uh, amidst the strongest, uh, uh, most fiery trials that we walked through in this life, we will see that it was not us that were clinging most closely to Christ, but that it was him who was keeping us. So may we be like that Jacob. May we join that generation who refused to let go of God's blessing to us revealed in Christ. And here's what I want you to see as we conclude with verses 7 through 10. As we conclude, you have the immensity of God's might and creation, the, the marvel of God's mercy and his work in bringing to us uh, clean hearts and, or pure hearts and, and, and whatever. Uh, yeah, you get it. Bring those two together, immense might, wonderful mercy, and you stir them all up in a beaker. And what you get is verses 7 through 10, the overall melody of rejoicing in the majesty of God our King. As then look at this. As the people of Israel reach the gates of Jerusalem, listen to their shouts from both inside and outside the city, and hear the triumphal rejoicing in God, their King of glory. Verse 7, the people marching to the city, lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then those inside the walls, they say, Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Then outside the gates, they say, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then verse 10, inside the gates, the walls, they say, Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, obviously, the gates and doors could not lift themselves up. This is imagery. This is, this is celebratory language. We are arriving in the city. Open the gates. Throw open the doors. The king of glory has arrived. But what does this phrase mean, king of glory? I think the clues to understanding this are actually found in verses 8 and 10. Verse 8, who's the king of glory? He's strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Verse 10, he's the Lord of hosts, the king of glory. Here's the deal. The people of Israel, surrounded by enemies that sought their destruction, surrounded by uh, dangers that threatened their survival, and even haunted by the own sin of their hearts that they seemed to not be able to shake. As they walked through this wilderness, it was the Lord God by him and by him alone that they were protected. He showed his strength. He showed his might. He defeated their enemies that they may safely reach his glorious kingly city. They saw him on display. They said, this is the king of glory, strong in might. But then also, 
this language of Lord of hosts, you imagine this angelic beings and you imagine all the, the might of God, the beauty of God who reigns over all things and, and has these angels and all of these that do his bidding that he may protect and preserve and work within all of his people. And it is as if you were able to pull the curtain back on the sky and gaze into heaven, you would see an innumerable host of, of, of beings, a host of angels that God, that, that God sends forth to do his work in working on behalf of his people. And, and the, the, the people, they sing of the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And then here's the thing that we have to understand though. If we were to pull back the, the curtains of heaven and see that and just sit down and watch that, that he would not be the king of glory if we just saw this. But what the people of Israel are teaching us is that we actually experience this. Glory is not something that you casually observe. Glory is something that you get caught up in. And so what we see here is that the, key, the people of Israel could sing because they were recipients of this glory or of this majesty and of this might and of this grace and of this mercy that they saw in God. They had tasted and seen that it was good and they trusted him with their everything. And this is where in one sense we look back to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and we look to God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, not marching into the city, but actually being led outside of the city, that he may wage war on the greatest danger that would face any of us, and that is our own sin and the death that we know as human beings. But then we don't stop there. We see him victorious in his cross over sin. We see him victorious in his resurrection over death. But we don't stop just looking 2,000 years ago. We also look forward to eternity when we will enter into the heavenly Jerusalem where our Lord God dwells and we will dwell with him rejoicing in his abundant mercy, enjoying the majesty of all that he has made in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will sing of the king of glory then. But it is a song that we join the chorus of now. Because the King, Christ Jesus, has come to us. We could not climb the hill. We could not ascend the hill and come to God, to his holy place. But his holy Son has come to us. Who is this King of glory? It is Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us rejoice in him. Let's pray. God, we give to you praise. It is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that you give us spiritual sight, spiritual eyes to see, new hearts to believe. May you help us to rejoice. And may you help us as we navigate day by day, week by week, to see your immense power over your creation and not let whatever the news may bring lead us to despair and distrust in you. And Lord, may we also see that just as you are immense in might, you are wonderful in mercy and you address our hearts and you minister in our hearts. In fact, you give us new hearts and you work within our souls in ways in which that are far deeper than anyone around us can see or that even we are aware of ourselves. You, O oh God, our King of glory, immense in might, wonderful in mercy, and help us to sing of your glory, our King, in response to this. Would you give us a spirit of rejoicing in you, 
Not a spirit of rejoicing as if we deny the hardships of this life, but a spirit of rejoicing that has taken hold of the blessing and the righteousness that is found in Christ and that is steadied with the promise we will sing of Christ, our King of glory in this day. And we will not just sing of him, but we will see him in that day. It is in him that we hope. Amen.